Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to First Chronicles chapter 10. If you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now. They have Bibles and pretty important to have a Bible always in church. But on Sunday nights, especially so, we cover a fair amount of territory and really hard sometimes to follow along and make sense of it if we can't hear it. Uh, and then also be able to follow along with our own eyes. Sunday night through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we pick things up tonight in First Chronicles uh, chapter 10. At this point in First Chronicles, the Holy Spirit moves from nine chapters of genealogy, which is basically a history lesson, as we saw last week. These names were intended to... Uh, provoke memories of the students of God's word to understand what he was communicating through those genealogies. But now he moves from genealogy to narrative. He starts to slow it way, way down because he's coming now to the life of David. And through David, uh, that bloodline of David, the Lord had promised to bring the Messiah, to bring Jesus into the world, even as he had said that he would. And so he is... Uh, in, in the genealogies, but now as he moves away from the genealogies, we remember that this is the Holy Spirit's recounting of the history of the Jews to the post-exilic Jews, that is the Jews that were coming back into the land of Israel following the Babylonian captivity. And that return, uh, they went into captivity to the Babylonians in three stages, there's three phases. Uh, they returned to the land in three phases as well. The first return was by Zerubbabel, with the focus of his return being the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. That decree was given by King Cyrus and is recorded in Ezra, the first half of the book of Ezra. Also Haggai and Zechariah deal with uh, focusing on that particular part of their history. The second return occurred under a scribe and a prophet by the name of uh, Ezra. And that occurred 57 years following uh, Zerubbabel, when a king by the name of Artaxerxes uh, gave Ezra permission to leave Babylon, go up to Jerusalem. And his focus was to be to return to the Jews that were now settling there and teach them the word of God, teach them about their history now that they had returned to the land. And then the third return was led by Nehemiah, 12 years after that, with a focus on rebuilding the wall that had been torn down uh, surrounding Jerusalem, destroyed uh, by King Nebuchadnezzar after the third and final conquest of, uh, of Jerusalem. We remember that this uh, history was written to uh, this generation of the Jews with the intention of being an encouragement to them following the a terrible failure of their forefathers due to their sin and their idolatry, which resulted in the Babylonian captivity. And uh, the sin and idolatry of that former generation of the Jews was so reckless, it was so irresponsible, that it not only put their own lives and, and their nation at that point in time in, in history in jeopardy and made it vulnerable to the Babylonian captivity, but they became so reckless that their actions even put God's plan of salvation for mankind in jeopardy because God had promised to bring a Messiah into the world through the Jewish people, through the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and, and so forth. And if the Jews had been deported from the land of Israel and had been taken into the Gentile uh, lands as they had for so many years, most nations that were displaced out of their land, taken and displaced into Gentile lands, were quickly absorbed by the Gentile nations. They lost their national identity, they intermarried, and they were gone. And if they had done that, then they were putting all of this bloodline <clears throat> potentially uh, lost for the Lord to bring his Savior into the world through. Now, we know, of course, God is in charge of human history, so he protected them while they were in Babylon. He brought them back into the land in order to continue now his work through the Jewish people, but also to keep his very significant promises that he had made to the whole world that he would accomplish uh, specifically through them. Now, this group of Jews that were returning to the land, they were in great need of encouragement. 
and uh, significantly. They were in need of encouragement related to the hardship of the land that they were uh, coming into. It was uh, significant that they were willing to leave Babylon. Um, the Jews, by the time they were f- allowed by the rulers to leave uh, Babylon and go back to Israel. Israel was back in the Stone Age just about. I mean, I'm speaking, you know, a little bit of hyperbole there. But it was a very, very rough conditions compared to Babylon. And so these people had a great love for God. They had a love for God's promises and his purposes for the Jewish people. But they needed to have some encouragement from God, that God was a God of second chances. And even though the previous generation had blown things so badly that God still had a hope and a future for them. And so this this first Chronicles and second Chronicles is given in order to provide them with that encouragement. And so we remember that while this history contained in first and second Chronicles is very, very similar to the history contained in first and second Kings, it is written with a different focus. It's written with a different purpose by God. And there are differences between the two records, differences. God records some things in First and Second Chronicles that he doesn't record in First and Second Kings, and then vice versa related uh, to the books, which tells us that whenever we come into a duplication where God is repeating himself now in this narrative, saying the same things that he had said back in First and Second Kings, that what he does repeat must be very significant to him. And they must be lessons that he is wanting to drive home that are applicable to every generation of his people. These are timeless truths. And so when we come to a place and... And we see that repetition. We need to to view it in in that kind of a way. Now, a little bit about before we get uh, into the book itself, I want to talk a little bit about repetition because there's so much of it in uh, first and second uh, chronicles. Anyone who has studied the Bible at all uh, becomes very well aware of the fact that God is not afraid of repetition. He is not afraid of repeating himself. He repeats himself a lot. I just figure he knows what he's working with. <laughs> These forgetteries that we have, that we call minds, and it doesn't get any better, does it? Some of you know. And so he doesn't have any problem about uh, repeating himself over and over and over again, and uh, he makes certain points over and over again from one end of the, this Bible to the other end of the Bible. One of the points that he's constantly making, you just think, how can he make it any, uh, any other way than he has? He, he makes it every way uh, not only humanly impossible, uh, possible, but divinely possible, this issue of the importance of obedience. And so he repeats it over and over and over again for the simple reason that apparently uh, we need to be repeatedly reminded uh, of this and other things. Now, repetition is very important in learning anything. Do you realize we're supposed to learn the Bible where you're here on Sunday night? I'm preaching to the wrong crowd. I think it's almost lost on people that we're supposed to know our Bibles from one end to the other as Christians. We should know this book better than any other song, any other movie, any other television thing, any other book, any other, any other, any other, any other thing, you know, times whatever. We're to know this Bible from one end to the other. And and so there's this repetition that God uses in the Bible because repetition is important in teaching. Oh, they do these studies and all about uh, the importance of repetition in teaching in any kind of academic center like a secular, uh, you know, a lecture or in uh, education or something like that. And as they do these studies, they, they estimate that a person, when they listen to a lecture, they will retain, 24 hours later, they will be able to retain 5% of what they've heard. That's a little discouraging, isn't it? So could you just bullet point this and uh, I'll look at it 24 hours from now? But that's the way that it is. And we know that the Holy Spirit's involved in this in a special way. And we know the Bible's not like anything else in the world. We know that you are motivated, unlike a typical lecture crowd, to learn the Word of God. We know that the Word of God doesn't return void. So there's that special work of the Holy Spirit attached to it. But we need to hear things over and over and over again. Because here we are, we learn something 
And we've got it figured out, you know, some doctrine of God, some revelation of God to a certain point, And then we hear it again and another 5% clicks in. And then another 5%. And then pretty soon when we're 300 years old, we've got the whole thing all figured out. But we're in heaven and that's why we figured it out. So, but that, the importance of repet, uh, repetition. And, and so as we're... Uh, repeatedly exposed to something, it becomes a part of our thinking, it becomes a part of our doing and our life. So things, if we just, something's just spoken to us one time, it doesn't, you know, work its way down into the fabric of our life and become a part of our practice. But repetition uh, does that. Repetition is also important for the simple reason that we need to be reminded of things that we already know. And so God's word is faithful to remind us of so much that we already know, but we're in need of being reminded of that. And, and so sometimes if you're listening to a Bible study as it's being taught, and sometimes a person can be tempted to think, not any, none of you, I know that, but some other people, you know, they, some other Christians... The temptation to think, oh, my, I already know that. Why should I give my full attention to this? And our minds drift off to Costco and what kind of free food samples they have in the aisles, you know, after the service or whatever it might be. But that's the wrong attitude toward the word of God. Even if I know something and am very, very familiar with a passage, the fact that God repeats that, it indicates that he knows from his all-knowing position, and he knows us so well that this is something we need to be reminded of over and over again. So the way to deal with repetition in the Bible and something that we're hearing taught or maybe we've read many times on our own in the Bible is to stop and say, as that's impacting us, we're hearing it once again, to just stop and say, Lord, this is so important to you that you remind us of this over and over and over again. So I want this truth to search me fresh and anew again. No matter how well I know it, no matter how uh, long I've walked with you, I want that truth to search me uh, once again. And that's a very mature way to view the, uh, to view the Word of God. The Apostle Paul, uh, Peter spoke of the importance of repetition in his second epistle. And we'll be done with First Peter and in First Chronicles in no time. So just relax. But uh, he wrote in, in his second epistle, and he knows that death is coming very, very quickly uh, toward him. Martyrdom is coming. And he wrote uh, to us as Christians, and he said, For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth, don't take the repetition as an insult, Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. And so because repetition is so important to God and our learning of the word of God, uh, there is... Uh, the, uh, there is so much of the repetition. And I think that one of the great things about heading through the Bible on the Sunday nights, you know, from Genesis to Revelation, is that not only do we uh, cover all of the territory, all the subjects that God has in the Bible, but as we head through it from Genesis to Revelation, we hit all of those subjects in the proportion in which they're represented in the Bible. Now, that's a, whether you realize it or not, that's a great protection for you uh, related to preachers or pastors. Because all of us have hobby horses. We all have subjects that we like more than other subjects. And so, boy, you get somebody that's in prophecy and you go to the church for a year and you're there 52 Sundays and you say, I just heard 52 sermons on prophecy that guy can teach on hell, and he comes to prophecy. He can teach on angels, and he works prophecy in. He can turn, every parable is about prophecy. Every miracle of Jesus is about prophecy. And that's how strong we can be turned in a bent uh, towards something that is exciting maybe to us. 
And so what you end up with is a congregation that's got like this gigantic Popeye right arm after he's had the spin. It's just gigantic, you know, this area of doctrine. And then the rest of the body's completely atrophied. It's just skin and bones. But as we head through the Bible, we hit all of the subjects, and it protects us from people like me because I have to teach all of this in the proportion that it's in there. And it makes it very carefree, really, for me. Because as we hit it and we look at it, and, and, and this may be a fault in me, I don't know, but uh, sometimes your heart can sink and you can say, is he going to teach that again? And then what do I do? I teach it again because I believe the things that I'm saying right now. We need to hear it once again, and I'd never know what, a passage from the Bible is doing in terms of rescuing someone uh, at that moment that the word of God's being taught. So important. This is our attitude toward this repetition, this repeated history, as we now uh, uh, move into the narrative. Chapter 10 sets the stage now for the life of David, which is going to dominate. It begins in chapter 10, 11. It dominates and fills all of the rest of First Chronicles. But we really can't understand David, and neither could they, without understanding what had happened prior to David in Israel's first king, a man by the name of Saul and, uh, and his uh, failure. Now, the Philistines fought against Israel. And the men of Israel, while under Saul's reign, they fled from before the Philistines and they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malchashua, Saul's sons. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him. He was wounded by the archers. And then Saul, realizing he was uh, terminally injured, he said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and abuse me. He was afraid of being taken alive by the Philistines and being tortured for a protracted period of time before they would put him to death. He had no doubt they would put him to death. And so he wanted the death to come quickly and without torture. But his armor bear wouldn't do it. I mean, he swore an oath of loyalty to the king. He wouldn't do it. He was greatly afraid. And therefore Saul took a sword and he fell on that sword. And when the armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died. And so Saul and his three sons died and all his house died together. And when all the men of Israel who were in the valley saw that, that they had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their cities. They fled as well. And then the Philistines came in, conquered that part of the land, dwelt in the homes that had just the day before been uh, indwelt by the Jews. And so it happened the next day when the Philistines came out to strip uh, the slain of their valuables, that they found Saul and his sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They were able to identify him. They stripped him, and then they took his head and his armor, and they sent word throughout all of the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols among the people. They put his armor in the temple of their gods, and they fastened his head in the temple of Dagon. And so this is some information that we don't uh, get from First uh, and Second Samuel related to the death of Saul. He was killed, but here we're told that the Philistines then beheaded him, uh, took his head, put it before the image of Dagon, which was a god of the Philistines, in the temple of Dagon, probably put it on a stake, put it right in front of the image of Dagon, and he became a trophy uh, of, of the Philistines. And so here is, here is God including the, the final days of Saul in his uh, uh, teaching here to this post-exilic generation because this is a lesson that's important for God's people all through the ages. Uh, the, uh, the, the danger of disobedience, as we'll see in just a moment. He takes his disobedience, as we see, 
causes him to become a trophy for the enemy. And when all Jabesh Gilead heard that the Philistines, what they had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose. They took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons. They brought them to Jabesh. They buried their bones under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. And so the men of Jabesh Gilead uh, saw when he first began his reign, he was hesitant to become king. But Nahash, the uh, Ammonite for Samuel, chapter 11, he came and he demanded the surrender of the men of Jabesh Gilead. And not only did he demand their surrender, but he required that they would gou- all the men would gouge one eye out of their head. Uh, in order to do that. Saul came out of the field, and uh, this was an affront to him, uh, that, that this was being put upon God's people. He, raised, he, he led them into an attack upon the Philistines, decisively defeated them there. And it's interesting now, we're talking about decades later, the men of Jabesh Gilead, they never forgot what Saul did for them. And Saul was obviously very, very far from perfect, very far from perfect. There's very little commendable about his life. But this says more about the men of Jabesh Gilead than it does about King Saul. And there was just that for all of his faults, they remembered. I mean, you know, love hopes all things. It believes all things, you know, and and they remembered the good thing that he had done. They were still uh, possessed gratitude for that. And so they went in at great risk to themselves to rescue the bodies and give them a proper burial. And so Saul died. Here's the moral of the story. He died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord. What was this unfaithfulness specifically? Because he did not keep the word of the Lord. He was disobedient to God's word all of his life. And he also giving us a a sense of how disobedient he was. uh, And also because he consulted a medium, the devil, for guidance, but he did not inquire of the Lord. And therefore the Lord killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. And so he eliminated and uh, Saul and allowed him to die in battle to allow David's reign uh, to begin. And so here was a man who uh, uh, just lived disobedient unto the Lord. And, and uh, so the warning to this new generation, you can't be like Saul. You can't just disobey me and disobey me and disobey me without you also becoming a trophy uh, to the enemy. So you went into captivity to the Babylonians as a nation. If you do what your fathers did before, then you're going to go into captivity to some other Gentile nation. But it also has an individual application for our lives. That is, we, uh, if we are in a place in our any time in our Christian life, it's true of leaders, true of everybody. We're all leaders in the body of Christ. I hope you're not a follower in this world. I hope you're the head and not the tail in this world, as God promises us, being obedient to him. And I know that you you are so. But this if we if a person deceives themselves into thinking that I'm special, I'm a different case. I can disobey God. I can make excuses for my sin. I can fail to repent and that my life will end up being any different than Saul and ultimately becoming a trophy to some false God of this world, to the shame of the true and the living God, then I'm deceiving myself. And so he drives home the point. It's a timeless point and it's an important uh, point. I think it's important also as we look at Saul before we leave him to realize that we need to learn lessons from bad examples in life uh, as well as good examples. And, and we need to learn lessons from bad examples rather than being stumbled by their bad examples. I wish everything that we learned in the body of Christ and everything we learned as a Christian was learned by watching spiritual heroes and always a happy ending and always everything exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think. But it doesn't work that way. If we, if we will not learn, as God's wanting to do here with that generation, if we will not learn from the mistakes of others, and then in learning from their mistakes, avoid those mistakes ourselves, then we probably cut off half of what can be learned in life. 
So much is learned by watching someone make terrible decisions in life than watching them crash and burn and then saying to myself, I see where that ends and so I choose not to go in that direction. Now here's, here's the problem and why it's so important to us. There are so many Christians that I've met through the years where some Christian uh, or someone who professes to know Christ, it can be either category, crashes and burns. They have a Saul ending. They just make a terrible, terrible mess of their life. And they allow what Saul does to stumble them in their relationship with the Lord. And so they'll use that church split or they'll use that failure of that leader or this person or that person that gossiped about me over here and they'll use it for all the rest of their life as an excuse not to be faithful to God, not to walk with God. And they kind of got this expectation that everything you learn in the Christian life is from good examples. And so when they see a bad example, they allow it to stumble them in their faith. We can't do that. There's too much stumbling that goes on. And so we need to learn in this way. I remember when uh, a number of years ago, remember when all the televangelists were getting kind of outed in the sexual scandals? And it was a real black eye for the body of Christ. And, of course, the media just loves to take any bit of hypocrisy and just put it in front of the whole world. I don't blame them. That's what they do. That's what they do with news. It's uh, salacious, and so it leads. It's, uh, it's of interest to people. But when those men fail, it didn't interrupt my walk with the Lord at all. If there's any man or woman that can fall in their relationship with God and that would stumble you, you've given that man or woman too great of a place in your life, period. You've got to change that tonight. There's only one who is the true and faithful witness of God in the whole world, and that's Jesus himself. And so this whole thing, if there's anybody where it was good, if, boy, if they did, or that, I, that would be the end of me, you're giving them a position that belongs only to God in your life. And you cannot give another human being that kind uh, of, of a place. And so... We can't allow the failure of other people to kind of disillusion us and then we cease to, to serve the Lord ourselves. No matter what anybody else does or doesn't do, we are called to be faithful. We have a personal relationship with God that should not be affected in that way by others. And so, important lesson for them, important lesson for us. Now, in that chapter 11, uh, we begin to move now into David's reign. And, uh, uh, it's, and I think it, before we even get into it, important to realize that while Saul was self-destructing, God was just quietly preparing a man to come in behind him and to bring Israel into their greatest time in their history. There will come a greater time when Jesus returns to the earth and he reigns from Jerusalem for a thousand years, known as the millennial reign of Christ. That's yet future. But the whole time that Saul is taking the whole nation downhill, God was preparing a very godly and wonderful leader to follow him. Important to realize that sometimes we look, we say everything's lost, not just about the world. I'm not talking about the secular world. Sometimes even in Christianity, the news can be so dismal all around. We say, what, you know, this whole thing is sinking and, and it'll never sink because God is always doing that quiet work. And then one day he, this person that he's been preparing, like in the case of David for 10 years, he brings them out into the open and then, wow, everything changes as a result uh, of that. I think it's also important for in our service to the Lord, and um, maybe I'm just a little uh, goofy as it relates to what I do to keep myself uh, on the straight and narrow, among other things. But one of the things that I remind myself as a servant of the Lord, but also a leader in the body of Christ, is that God can replace me in a moment. I don't doubt that ever. That's not like some great thing I have to work through. But that God 
when he is forced to remove someone because of their recklessness and their sin and and, you know, what they have done to God's people. It's amazing how he will step in and he will replace them with someone far better. And how quickly that servant of the Lord that had failed the Lord is forgotten in history. And it's a good thing to smite our pride as we serve the Lord and as God uses us in some small way and we are then tempted to think, I can live in hypocrisy, I can live with areas of willful disobedience in my life to realize that the Lord could replace us in just a moment and when He replaces us, He'll replace us so well no one will remember us in four weeks. And it helps us to realize that, that this is a privilege to be able uh, to, to serve Him. And so... Here we come now to David, and then all of Israel, they joined Judah. Uh, the southern kingdom of Judah had uh, already recognized at this point David as the next king of Israel. But all of Israel, the northern section of Israel, hadn't done that. And so they came together to David at Hebron, where David was. Uh, he, he ruled in Hebron for seven years. Uh, he ruled in Jerusalem for 33 years, for a total of, of 40 years. And he died at the age of 70. And so, uh, but for those seven years, he only reigned over the tribe of Benjamin and, and of Judah. And so all of the other tribes join him there and they, and they call on him now to become uh, their king, saying, indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. And also in time past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And uh, the Lord your God said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over my people Israel. And so they call on him now to become the king over all of Israel at the death of Saul. It gives them three reasons why they want him to be the king. There's a blood relationship. He's a descendant of Jacob, even as they were. He had a long history of strong leadership, God uh, blessing his leadership. And then if you, if you don't really need any more excuse, uh, reasons, then, then the third reason, as they say at the end there of verse 2, the recognition that God had called David to be the next king uh, over Israel. And therefore, all of the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord by Samuel, that he would become the next king uh, of, of Israel. And David and all the men then went to Jerusalem, which was at the time called Jebus, which is where the Jebusites, a group of people at that time, uh, were in, in the city of Jebus. They were inhabitants of the land. So David becomes king, and his, uh, he wants to change the capital. He, Hebron had been the capital. He wanted to make Jebus, or, which he will rename to Jerusalem, uh, the capital uh, of Israel, because uh, Hebron was too far to the south. Jerusalem is centrally located in uh, Israel, and so it, may, it would make it easy for the northern and the southern tribes to go to the city. It's going to become the political center and the spiritual center of the land. And uh, so this is the city that he has his eye on. Now, I think he has his eye uh, on uh, Jerusalem or Jebus for more reasons than just uh, making it uh, geographically easy for people. Uh, Jerusalem was just a stone's throw and is even to this day uh, away from Bethlehem where David had grown up. And he has watched the whole time he's being raised. The Jebusites have controlled it. By the time David comes to conquer uh, Jebus, the Jebusites have controlled it for 400 years. The only time it ever fell, it was ever in Jewish control was just for a very short period of time under Joshua. And then it went under the Jebusites almost immediately after that, and they've been in control of it ever since. I think as David, as a boy, he would just look at that city, and he wrote the psalm, I think it was Psalm 84, beautiful for situation. And this how it's placed with three valleys around it in three directions, easy, uh, beautiful, easy to 
defend, and he put his eye on that and uh, with the idea of making that his uh, capital. But the inhabitants of Jebus, they don't give up their uh, capital so easily. So they then taunted David. They said, you shall not come in here. And, of course, in the uh, other books in Second Samuel, we know they said, hey, if we put even the blind and the lame up on the wall to defend it, this city is so impenetrable that you won't even be able to get in. And so they were mocking them. And nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is the city uh, of David. And David said, whoever attacks the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. And so Joab, the son of Zeruiah, he went up first and he became chief. Joab went up through the water shaft, took the city and conquered it. And so he became the captain and the chief of David's military. And then David dwelt in the stronghold. Therefore, they called it the city of David. And he built the city around it from the Milo to the surrounding area. Joab repaired the rest of the city, made it kind of fit for a capital. And so David went on and became great. And the Lord of hosts was with him. Now, again, as an encouragement to God's people, here they are, they're returning to the land of Israel from Babylon, and uh, Jerusalem is just a shell of its former self. But here God reminds them through David that, hey, it's been worse in your history. There was a time in your history when Jerusalem wasn't even your capital. It belonged to the Jebusites. It had belonged to the Jebusites for 400 years. Nobody ever dreamed that it could become the capital of the children of Israel. And so he's basically saying to that generation, listen, I've, I've walked with you, you as a people, me with you. We've been through a lot harder things than this. I made it the capital to begin with. Yeah, you're coming back to Jerusalem and it's a mess and it's going to be a lot of hard work to turn it into its former glory. But I was involved with you and your people when it wasn't even a capital. And so what I'm asking you to do, the hope that you have, the future that you have, we've done even bigger things before that. And again, to encourage their faith in the greatness of their God. Then he moves on in, in verse 10. And he begins to lay out uh, the great men that began to join themselves to to David, ultimately became uh, the great military uh, that uh, that became to characteristic, uh, characterize Israel at that time. And so David's mighty men are now mentioned beginning in verse 10. Now, these are the heads of the mighty men whom David had, who strengthened themselves with him in his kingdom, with all Israel, to make him king according to the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So in those days, if you're going to start a country, you had to have a military. And in those days, your military was your police force and your military. So you can't do much until you have enough of a military to protect yourself from attack from without and guarantee peace from within. And so one of the first things that was necessary then and today, and today we see it in the headlines today of, of, of the news, the importance of having a, a, a military that is, is functional and sufficient strength. And so God speaks to us of the military that he put together for Israel under David. And, and he begins to speak about these different uh, men. And this is the number of the mighty men whom David had. Uh, Joshabim, the son of uh, of uh, Hakmonite, uh, uh, son of a Hakmonite, chief of the captains, he had lifted up his spear against 300 killed by him at one time. And so here's a, he's describing now the top three men in David's military. Joab is already one of them. And then he, he speaks of Joshua Beam here. And imagine with a spear being able to kill 300 men. In other words, his strength and his abilities were supernatural, kind of like Samson. But tremendous bravery. Here's a guy that's going to stand in front of 300 as they come one right after the other. And he was victorious. And after him as a part of this top three was Eliezer, the son. It's not Dodo, it's Dudu. Or Duda. I'm not saying that any of them are great. But that's what it is. And uh, so that was, uh, that was his father's name, which, which will make you tough as a kid, probably. Prepare you to become one of the top three. 
the uh, Ahohite, who was one of the three mighty men. And he was with David at Pastamim. And there were now there, there the Philistines were gathered for battle. There was a piece of ground full of barley. And so as they're standing there, David and Eliezer, the uh, men that were part of the military, the Jews, they began to flee from the Philistines. And David and Eliezer, they stationed themselves in the middle of that field. And they defended it and killed the Philistines. And so the Lord brought about a great victory. So obviously this produces a a great sense of loyalty of this man toward David. Very, very brave and willing to lay their lives down. This is a great revelation concerning Eliezer and David. They were willing to lay their lives down in the defense of a barley field. A barley field is the least grain, was and is the least of all the grains. This wasn't a wheat field, something that's valuable. Barley was something that you fed to animals or you fed to the poorest of the poor. But it wasn't about the barley. It was about the principle. God had given them this land. God had given them promises related to this land. And so the principle was that not even the the most feeble part of this land deserves to be in the hands of our enemies in the light of the power of our God and the promises of our God. And so they weren't willing to budge an inch on that. And so this is a man of great principle. His heart is in line with David. And so he becomes one. Of, uh, of the top three in, in David's entire uh, military. And then in verse 15 begins to talk about uh, the second three uh, great men of, of David's um, uh, mighty men here. And um, it, it, uh, now the three of the 30 men went down to the rock of David. Uh, into the, no, it's, this is talking about the same three in this great uh, act of love and respect that they showed toward David. So uh, to give an idea of, of, um, uh, of how brave they were, the three, these three of the 30 men went down to the rock uh, to David, to the cave of Adullam, and the army of the Philistines encamped in the valley of uh, Rephaim. And David was in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. So the Philistines had taken over Bethlehem, David's hometown. Would that just grate against you if you were David? That's my hometown. But the Philistines conquered it. And the the kind of leader he is, it must have really been tough for him. And as he's watching this whole thing, David said, he's just kind of thinking out loud. And he said with longing, oh, that someone would give me a drink of water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. He knew right where it was. He was a kid. He got a drink of water from there all of his life and everything. He said, man, I just love to be in that city and, and drink from that well one more time. And so... Just for him to voice even a desire uh, brought out kind of a heroism in these three. And so the three broke through the camp of the Philistines. They drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate. They took that water, brought it to David. Nevertheless, David would not drink it, but he poured it out to the Lord. And he said, far be it from me. O Lord, my God, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of these men who've put their lives in jeopardy to get this water for me? For at the risk of their lives, they brought it. And therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. And so uh, David realized that the sacrifice that they had made was a sacrifice that uh, was deserving of God alone. And uh, he valued their life as much as they valued his life. And so So he poured it out on their behalf as an expression of of their love and worship uh, toward the Lord. Now, one of the things that's interesting uh, to me related to this whole level of we've got three mighty men, the the top three. In a moment, we see there's going to be another three of the next layer. And then there's going to be a listing of 30 uh, uh, the next 30 great men in David's military, and then we're going to then there's going to be a listing of the various tribes where we've got over 300,000 men from all the different tribes, kind of the regular infantry that became a part of that military. And it's a fascinating thing because in this military of David, in this whole work of God, there isn't it's not like communism where everybody's equal. And, and or thinking that everybody has equal abilities and so everyone should be put equally in in different spots. There were men who were uh, the top three. 
There were men who were the next three. There were men who were the next, that were the part of the 30. Not everybody could be in the top three of David's military. And that's okay. And I think that sometimes, you know, we, we can look and, and relate it to God's calling on our own uh, individual lives. And we can, not all of us can be the top three. In fact, none of us can probably in anything or in the top 30. But in any particular call that God has upon our individual lives, but we're still called to be faithful to God in our calling. You know, sometimes I go to a pastor's conferences and I will listen to uh, the teachers as they speak. And sometimes at a lot of conferences, they just put up the very, very best speakers uh, that can absolutely be found. And I, I assume that they think that that's going to be an encouragement to all of us. But after I get done listening to four or eight or twelve of these people, I think to myself, I quit. <laughs> you know? And there's a, there's a whole idea that if I'm not in the top three or the top six or at least in the top 30, you know, what in the world am I doing wasting my own time and wasting everybody else's uh, time on this? And so it becomes, rather than a great encouragement, it becomes a great discouragement uh, I think the Apostle Paul, he said, we're not supposed to compare ourselves among ourselves as Christians. He said it to Corinth, where a lot of that was going on. He put it this way, for we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves uh, with those who commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. And the reason it's not wise to compare ourselves among ourselves is because it has a tendency to lead either to pride or to condemnation. Where a person can begin to think where maybe they are a top three or they are a top six or they are a top 30 in terms of God's work worldwide or whatever it, uh, it, it might be. And God gives them a special degree of spiritual influence and they begin to think that that's something that is they're deserving of rather than uh, God's grace. And rather than realizing that all that means is they're going to be responsible for even more before the bema seat of Christ than the rest of us. Are. Jesus said, for everyone to whom much is given from him, much will be required and to whom much has been committed of him. They will ask the more. But there's also that temptation towards self-condemnation where we think that because we don't have as much obvious fruit as everybody else or spiritual influence as everyone else, then what we're doing uh, isn't important. But whatever the fruit or the influence of God's call upon our lives, God has called each of us to be faithful. That's what we're called to be. It doesn't have anything to do with with the talent or even the sphere of influence that God gives to us. God has called us to be faithful to what he's called us to be faithful to, whether it's the top anything or whether it even gets noticed by the rest of the world or half of the Christians have greater ministries or greater fruit or greater this or greater than that than we have. I remember when we first moved here and uh, Back in 1985, but we drove back and forth from Napa to Modesto for 18 months before we moved here. And um, I had uh, never taught anything in the Bible in my whole life. I mean, I had taught uh, things related to what was taught on the Sunday morning at the church that I was attending and in a home Bible study and all. But I remember I started to teach um, uh, First Peter. And I'd never taught First Peter in my life. I didn't even know that books of the Bible had themes. I didn't even know there was a point behind them. And so here I am, I'm coming, and I would think to myself, why don't we just get like Chuck Smith cassette tapes and play those and just do that? I mean, everybody would be a lot better off. Not just the people, but I'd be a lot better off. And the Lord just kind of speaks to you and says, yeah, I'm doing what I'm doing with Chuck. And yeah, he's in, he's in that top three kind of category or wherever he is in the whole big picture, pretty high on that. But that doesn't have anything to do with you. You're supposed to go there and teach. You realize a guy can teach a church of 25 in northern Michigan. <laughs> and nobody in the whole world knows they even exist. But that man can be more faithful to God's calling than the pastor that pastors a megachurch. And it's vice versa. It works the other way as well. 
The key is to be faithful to what it is that God has called us to do. And sometimes we look at this person and that and their heroics and their testimony and this, and it can be so completely discouraging to us. One day we're going to be rewarded, not for how much influence we had, not even for how much fruit we had out of our lives and our Christian service, where we're going to be rewarded for our faithfulness to the calling. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. And so he lists then in verse 20, uh, the next three, uh, and Abishai, the brother of Joab, was chief of another three, and his exploits were this. He lifted up his spear against 300 men, killed them, and won a name among these three. And of the three, he was more honorable in that second three than the other two men, and therefore he became their captain. However, he did not attain to the first three. That's just the way that it is. You can beat your head against the wall, but that's the way it is. Uh, Beniah was the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabzeel, who had done many deeds, and he killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. So these guys got to have some big old beards, big long hair, gigantic, fearsome guys. And uh, so he killed them. He also went down into a pit, and he killed a lion in the midst of that pit on a snowy day. You say, why all the detail? Listen, you got a lion caught in a snowy pit in the winter, that thing is starving. So it's a big deal to kill a starving lion uh, in, in the fairly limited room to move around. And yet, this was the kind of uh, abilities he had. And he killed an Egyptian, a man of great height, five cubits, seven and a half feet tall. In the Egyptian's hand... There was a spear like a weaver's beam, and he went down to him with a staff. Uh, Benaiah did just this cane kind of. He wrestled this. I like this. He just wrestled the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and he killed him with his own spear. And these things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiah, did, and he won a name among the mighty three. And indeed, he was more honored than the thirty, but he didn't attain to the first three, and David appointed him over his guard. And then verse 26, also the mighty warriors, the next level of thirty, and they are listed all the way through to the end of the chapter. I want us just to notice uh, in verse 39, uh, Z- uh, Zalek, the Ammonite. Now listen, I'd read all of these names if my name was in there. But because it's not, I'll leave you to read that a little later on your own to see if you're in there. So, but my point being, this was a big deal to be on this list. It's just there's a little time separation now, and we don't know uh, these people. But we do notice that there was Zelek, uh, the Ammonite, uh, who was a foreigner that was a part of David's uh, 30 mighty men. Uh, we notice in verse 41, Uriah the Hittite, and the story related to that. But Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, who was later killed to cover Uh, David's adultery with Bathsheba, he was a Hittite, he wasn't a Jew. And then in verse 46 at the very end, Ithma was also a Moabite. So David and his leadership abilities are not only attracting uh, the very best among God's people, among the Jews, but it is attracting uh, men of virtue, uh, men of nobility, even in the surrounding nations who are recognizing this is an extraordinary leader. God is on his life. God is good, going to do something great through him. And we want to be a part of helping that happen and be a part of that with our own lives. And so we'll stop there in chapter 11. We'll make the introduction far shorter next week and begin to, to make some real headway through First Chronicles. But tonight we'll